with me to Malachi. If you're not sure where that is, go to Matthew and take a sharp left. It's the last book of the Old Testament. The very last book of the Old Testament. Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. We're going to read verses 3, 1 through 3, and then jump to 4 and read verses 1 and 2. From Malachi the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves." Wow. Dear Lord, I thank you for this prophecy. I thank you for this time that we have here to look into your oaths and your uh, prophecies and, um, and your character, Lord, and who you are, what we have to look forward to, what we have right now. So, Lord, I pray that you would lead us and guide us in your word, that you would use your servant Paul to do exactly that, that you would bless him, that you would anoint him with your Holy Spirit, with your fire, with your refiner's fire for us, Lord, that you would give him passion as, uh, as he opens this, these scriptures to us. So speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we are in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, at least uh, the Old Testaments that we have. Our Old Testaments are based on the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is sometimes called the Septuagint or the LXX. And the order of the uh, Septuagint is somewhat different than the Tanakh or the Jewish Bible. Uh, The Books are exactly the same. There's no change in the books at all. The order of the books is is uh, slightly different. So the last book of the Hebrew Bible is the book of Second Chronicles. Okay? But the same books are involved here. But we have Malachi because we've grouped all of the prophets together in one block there at the end of uh, of the Old Testament. Now... I had to make a decision 
should I go to Malachi, which is obviously kind of a stepping off point also into the New Testament, should I do that before talking about um, the bad guy of the Old Testament who crops up in Daniel and, and uh, in uh, a couple of other places in the Old Testament, uh, the one that we know as the Antichrist. Because there are prophecies not only of Christ in the Old Testament, but of Antichrist too. And I've decided that I'm going to leave Antichrist alone until we get to uh, the prophetic passages in the New Testament, which actually deal with him. And then we'll go back into the Old Testament and look at those, those prophecies at that time to get that context. Uh, so I hope I've made the right decision to do that. But anyway, that's the decision that I've made. We come to the book of Malachi, and the book of Malachi is God's closing word uh, to Israel. There was no more word after this for well over 400 years, 450, some people would say 500 years. A long time, a long time uh, until John the Baptist came on the scene. And uh, Malachi is a book about how the Jewish leaders in particular had just not got the truth of God right. They had not understood who God is. They were in the word and they were teaching it, but they just didn't apply it properly. They didn't understand that the word of God, yes, it involves wonderful truths about the world, about human beings, about God. Um, But it also has to be lived. It should evoke a, a response, a transformation in the heart, a change of mind. It should cleanse us from the ideas of the world and from the ideas that froth up in our own hearts, and it should clear that out with the truth, and that truth should come through in our actions. Well, the priests and the the religious leaders in Malachi's day did not get that. So it's a book basically against them and how they misunderstood uh, the truths of God. And yet... It wasn't in vain, you might think in reading the first uh, two and a half chapters anyway, that uh, Malachi was in like a losing battle here. Nobody was listening. But in chapter 3, there is this wonderful passage which we've uh, referred to before in uh, verses 16 through 18, which speaks about... Those who feared the Lord. Those who feared the Lord. And what they did is that they got together and they spoke about the things that Malachi had said and the the, uh, references to the other prophets and the other truths of the Old Testament. And God saw it. God was witness to it. Now, of course, they didn't know this, did they? When they were meeting together... Uh, and responding in the right way to what God had said through his prophets, 
They couldn't see that God was looking from heaven. This is an inspired uh, word that Malachi was given to tell those people that God saw what they were doing. And it's a tremendously encouraging word because what it does is it tells you that when you respond to the word of God in the right way, God sees it and God is pleased with it. And because God is the kind of God that he is, because he's very gracious and because uh, he... uh, is full of loving kindness. It says here, so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Not thinking about what God has done for them. Notice, they're thinking about who God is. Yes, the God word in their focus. That's what worship is. And God says, they shall be mine. On the day that I make up my jewels. Now, God's jewels are going to be much more impressive than anything the Queen of England wears. Um, Which means that these people are prized greatly. You are prized greatly if you pay attention to the word of God and you use the word of God to, to think about who God is. And you believe what the Bible says about God. God responds to that. He responds to you. You might think that nobody sees. You might think, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm paddling upstream here. Everybody else wants to go this way, the easy way. And I'm just, am I odd? Am I weird? Am I strange for for stopping and thinking about who God is like this? I'm not getting much encouragement. Well, be encouraged. Be encouraged that God sees you. God sees you. And uh, there's coming a day when God is going to act in a final act, as it were, in bringing this world to judgment and in sending his son back again to rule upon this earth chapter 3 and verse 1 introduces this individual calls him the messenger of the covenant but before we get to the messenger of the covenant there's another messenger that's mentioned in verse 1 do you see him behold I send my messenger And he will prepare the way before me. Well, we know from Mark's gospel, chapter 1, if you'll flip over to that, that this is speaking about John the Baptist. Let me read this uh, for you. In the beginning of the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you, and then it quotes also from Isaiah 40 there, and references John. You see in verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So we know that the messenger who is first introduced in Malachi chapter 1 is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, of course, introduced Jesus as the coming Messiah. 
to Israel. John the Baptist was definitely fit for the role. He was a dramatic personality, as we all run into him, of course, when we get into the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, particularly. But John was an impressive figure, and he was also an impressive speaker. And he drew a lot of people to, uh, into the wilderness to hear what he had to say. And his main message was about the coming messenger. Not about him, but about the one to come, who was, of course, Jesus. As we will see, John's message, as so many of these prophetic messages do, mixed the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus together in one prophecy. And you have to kind of pass them. You have to divide them to make sure that you're not misapplying second coming passages to the first coming. You have to do the same thing here in this passage in Malachi. Because we know that John the Baptist hailed Jesus onto the scene, gave him the right introduction, gave him the right identification, and he came and he was rejected. He came, but he was killed. He was murdered. Does that mean that uh, this whole prophecy trips up and falls flat on its face? No, it just means that in the plan and the providence of God, there was a work to be done in the church before the second coming of Christ. That's not seen in the Old Testament. But my messenger there is... John the Baptist. What was his mission? His mission was not only to identify the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but to point out that people had a problem with sin. His idea really was quite simple. You being a Jew, you being an Israelite, that's not enough. You being in covenant with God and going to the temple and doing all of these things that religious Jews did. You going to the synagogue all the time and obeying, you know, the dictates of the the, uh, Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes. Not enough. Not nearly enough. They had to prepare themselves. They had to rethink who God was in light of the preaching of John and then the preaching and the arrival of Jesus. Just as Malachi shows us that the religious leaders didn't have God right, so the religious leaders in uh, John's day didn't have God right. And so John's job was to preach against their representation of God. God John said, demands repentance. That horrible word that you don't hear of in many Christian pulpits anymore. You're going to hear it again when we get into the New Testament. Repentance just means a change of mind, a change of outlook, a change of perspective. You saw things one way, now you see that that way is wrong. 
and you see now things another way, and you say that way is right, and you put your faith in that, which is the way of God. That's what repentance is. There's more to it, and we'll get into it. But the general idea of, is uh, identifying where you were wrong, turning from it, and identifying and going in the right way. Do you see? It's a change of mind. Change of mind also includes a change of action, because you, if you don't change your actions, you haven't really changed your mind, have you? You see? <laughs> now, the change of action, I must say, is more difficult than the change of mind. Because we have this thing called the flesh, and we have, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all trying to persuade us that the way of God, the way of righteousness, is wrong, and just do what the world does. But repentance turns from all of that. So that was John's message, and people came out, they swarmed <clears throat> to listen to him, and many of them did repent and the sign of their baptism, their, uh, sorry, repentance was the baptism in anticipation of the coming of another messenger. God's representative. The one whom, uh, the end of Malachi 1 is identified as the messenger of the covenant. John prepares his way. And it says, the Lord, Malachi 3.1, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. This is Jesus Christ. But is it the first coming of Christ or is it the second coming of Christ? This is, this is the question you always have to ask when it comes to the prophets? Well, it's actually both and. It's both and. It's not, either, it's not either or. Because Jesus came, and as we've seen, he shed his blood in order to institute the new covenant. So he was certainly the messenger of a covenant, the covenant that was in him. The covenant that was all about him. And in fact, as the book of Hebrews reminds us, the covenant that he mediates. He's the high priest of. And that is the new covenant. And certainly that was brought at the first coming. And that's very significant. But in another sense, this passage tells us that the messenger of the covenant brings something else. And as we read on, in chapter 3 of Malachi, you will see that it is um, a reformation described as a refining fire, a laundress soap, as a purifier as silver, or in chapter 4, like a burning oven. <laughs> That is a reference to the second coming of Christ. So I hope you're not confused by these two things. In, as I've said before, in the prophets, 
what you see is the first and second comings of Christ fused together. Okay? They didn't know about the church. The church intervenes between the two. Yes, and that's where we are right now. But when you're reading the prophetic literature, you have to kind of omit the church because he's not in, the church is not revealed in the Old Testament. And then you have to pass, as I've said, the first and second coming of Christ out. Jesus, therefore, is depicted as coming suddenly. Do you see that? Suddenly. Well, that's not really a picture of the first coming. It's more of a picture of the second coming. A sudden shock. A change. Life is going on the way life has always gone on for centuries. We expect the same things tomorrow as as happened yesterday and the day before that. Nobody's thinking about this is ever going to change, okay? And then, bam, Jesus comes. And Jesus stops everything in its tracks. What about that first coming? The first coming in... Humility. There's a baby in a manger growing up in, in the unfashionable northern country of Israel, in Galilee, not in the fashionable southern country. Away from uh, the center of politics, the center of the temple uh, cult there in ancient Jerusalem. Jesus didn't come to his temple suddenly in that sense, did he? He came as a visitor. And although he did a few things towards the end of his ministry that made him very unpopular, like overthrowing the tables of the money changers, nothing like what's described here in the prophet happened at the first coming of Christ. And eventually they dispatched him. They thought they'd done him in. They thought that he, would go, he had gone because there he was on a Roman cross and the power of Rome had done what the power of Rome always did. Win out. Crush. Any kind of rebellion. And yet Jesus brought a messenger because he's called here a messenger. So what is the message that Jesus brought? This message is centered in him. And it has to be centered in him because he is the Lord. And so he's not going to talk about somebody else. He's not going to be talking about someone who's lower than himself. When the Lord comes, even in the humility in which Jesus came in the first coming... The message must be about him. Do you see? There's nobody more important than him. Nobody that he's going to point to and say, well, go listen to him, never mind me. No, he's there. He is God. He is the Lord. He is the promised one. Listen to him. So John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase.
So the message was about believing in Jesus, believing that he came from the Father, believing that he came from God, the Creator, and that he was equal to God as his Son, and that therefore his words were the very words of God, his actions were the very actions of God, his compassion was the very compassion of God, it was the heart of God. That his rebuke and his anger was the rebuke and the anger of God. These things, in a small way, showed us exactly what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, study the life of Jesus. I mentioned in uh, our Bible study on Thursday, I said, one of the things that you, you should do when you read the Gospels is notice how many times the text tells us Jesus looked at someone. Jesus looked at them. The Gospel writers bring that to our attention. Okay? They didn't have to. That's not the way people normally write. They, you know, someone comes to Jesus and you would expect, and Jesus responded. Or Jesus said, but very often they include this detail and Jesus looked at her. Jesus looked at him. And what's behind that is very significant. It is that Jesus was pausing what he was doing to pay attention to the person who was speaking to him. Jesus was all in, all involved with that person and what that person wanted, what that person needed. And I've said that Jesus, when you see him, in fact, he himself said that if you see him, you've seen the Father. You've seen what God is like. This means that when you come to God in your prayer, God looks at you. God, at God's attention is upon you. You don't see it. You don't feel it. You might feel that your prayer just gets a little bit above your forehead and then falls disastrously to the ground in a tailspin. Not true. Your prayer, if it's a sincere prayer, goes all the way up to the throne of God where God pays attention to it. Jesus is the messenger of God in that way. He tells you what God is like. There were some great men of God in the Old Testament, but none of them was God. None of them was like God. Not David, not Moses, not any of them. Jesus is God. But Jesus is also Jehovah is salvation, or Yahweh is salvation. He is the Savior. He is God who comes to save souls, to rescue sinners. And the message that he brings is a message of believe in me. Look at me. Listen to me. The message of the world is, look to yourself. 
Okay? You're a strong man. You're a strong woman. You can do it. You can be what you want to be, and no, you can't. Maybe you can for a short time if you're selfish enough, self-centered enough, and determined enough. But that will land you in hell. Fail. Listen to Jesus. If the world is not saying that you should listen to yourself, what is it saying? Listen to other religions, other points of view, other truths, other faiths, other kinds of spirituality, which are not spirituality at all. They're just self-centeredness. They're just you-centered. You in your meditation, you in your forgetfulness, you in your involvement with whatever pursuit that you might go after. But it's you. But Buddha did not die on a cross for your sins. Buddha didn't have much to say about sins. In fact, he would say that those sins are just the effects of the world that isn't real. The world that you've got to come away from. Okay? Because reality is realizing that reality out here doesn't exist. You know, if the reality out here doesn't exist, then the sins and the transgressions and everything that's done in it don't exist either. So Buddha's not going to help you with sins. Neither is Confucius, neither is Muhammad, neither any religious leader. None of them died on a cross. None of them was the son of God. None of them rose again from the dead. None of them told you, have faith in me and you will have eternal life. Why would you listen to anybody else? The messenger of the covenant has come. And you can be part of that covenant. And remember that the covenant, uh, the central part of it is an oath. And this is an oath from God. An oath telling you that if you trust in Jesus, you have forgiveness of sins, you become a son or daughter of God, and you have eternal life in an eternal bliss. You want to be in that covenant. You want to listen to that messenger. Well, if you do, if you reject that messenger, you'd be just like the people that rejected him when he came the first time. But he's coming again. He's not done yet. You say, well, of course he's done. I mean, this is 2,000 years and, you know, we've got cell phones and we've got internet and we've got all of these things that help us to forget about truth and just distract us and service us any way that we want. That's true, they distract you all right. They dehumanize you. They make you believe that you're not an eternal soul who has to answer to God, your creator. But the messenger left his message for you. He's gone. 
At the moment, he's gone. He'll return, but at the moment, he's gone in heaven. But his message remains. It's in the New Testament. So he's done his job, and his job is ongoing. And yet the prophet Malachi tells us that he is coming again. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But, verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? There's the question. Are you ready? When Jesus returns, if he returns in our lifetime, will you be ready? Let's see how he shows up this time, okay? There's kind of a contrast here, you might notice. No more is he the lowly, humble Galilean fisherman, or carpenter, sorry, the fisher of men. Now, he is like a refiner's fire, like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Well, purifying silver involves a lot of heat, a lot of fire, purging the dross. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. Do you get the idea? The question that you must ask yourself is, if Jesus shows up and you are confronted by him and all you have is your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own story and lie about yourself that you're a good person really, if people could just see it, is that going to be enough to face this day? Or does he see a little bit further than you want him to see? Does he see past the mask, past the lies? We all lie to ourselves. We all put these masks on. We all want to present a certain version of ourselves to ourselves, and we also want to uh, believe them ourselves. We want to believe the best things about ourselves. And when we are not the best version of ourselves, when we're angry, when we're bitter, when we're resentful, when we're envious, when we're covetous, when we are um, wicked in uh, any number of ways, we think that that's just a small view. That's just a small part of us that's just surfaced. Not true. That's us. Jesus told us that what's in the heart comes out of the heart. Do you see? So if if it wasn't in you to begin with, it wouldn't come out of you. The fact that it does come out of you, and so many other unpleasant things too, that's the true picture that God sees. And then your little self-righteousness, your mask... Where's that now? That is not going to withstand the day of his coming. It says in 
verse 1 of chapter 4. All the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. Well, stubble and fire, when they come together and have a bit of a dust-up, fire wins all the time. Very quickly, too. The day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But, verse 2, you who fear my name, to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Um, This is a marvelous passage. And the idea here is that if you're wicked, if you're with the world, if you reject Jesus, if you mock the idea that he's coming again, you think the idea that God's going to actually come and be present upon earth and change the present uh, direction of the world, if you're like that, you will not survive. And you will not enter his kingdom. If, however, you fear the Lord, you think upon his his name, you listen to the messenger, you pay attention to the message, and you believe the message with all your heart, because it's your only hope, then to you, Healing comes. Complete restoration comes. A healing of your body, a healing of your mind, a healing of your memories, a healing of your heart, a healing of your hurts, a healing of this world. Everything is put right. Righter than right. Better than it was before. Because the son of righteousness comes. And shines upon the world. And he shines his righteousness throughout the world. And he transforms the world when he comes back. And you say, well, what about the wicked people? What about the resistance that he will meet? He's not meeting any resistance when he comes back, I assure you. At least not for very long. If you think stubble, resist fire, well, it might do for a second or two. But there's no real resistance. The last uh, prophet of the Old Testament tells us that Jesus, the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant, is coming. Now, there was 500 years. That's a quarter of the time that it's been since his first coming. But there was 500 years approximately between when Malachi stopped writing and when John the Baptist came and Jesus came along with him a little later. 2,000 years nearly, nearly 2,000 years since Jesus died and rose again. It may have looked like in the Old Testament before the New Testament was written and before Jesus came like my seemed as though Jesus, or rather the Messiah, was not going to come at all. 
And it might look to people as though Jesus is just a historical figure and you should keep him in the past. That is a fatal mistake. The same prophets that said that he would come the first time and he did come and do what he did predict he's coming again. Hey, they were 100% right the first time. I think they can be trusted the second time too. Especially since the one who is coming is the one who gave them the words. The question is, therefore, do you believe him? Do you believe him? Are you ready? There's something very interesting right at the end of the book of Malachi that is often missed. And let me read the last three verses for you. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Here's a question for you. Who are the last three people mentioned in the Old Testament? They're right there in that passage. Who are they? Elijah's one of them. Who? Moses. And who else? Who? No, Horeb's the mountain. The Lord. The Lord. Where do you have the Lord, Moses, and Elijah together in the New Testament? The transfiguration, okay, Matthew 17, Luke 9, which is a presentment or prophecy of Jesus' second coming. That's when Jesus showed who he was. Just for a short time and just to three witnesses. Well, that Jesus, the glorious Jesus, okay, the incomparable Jesus, he's the one that's coming back. He's the one that's prophesied right at the end of the Old Testament. And the question is, as we wait for him, is that, is he coming? And are we ready? Are you? Because he's coming suddenly and you won't have time to change your mind. You won't have time this time to think about, oh, well, maybe, uh, you know, I should think about this now and put my faith in him. No, you need to put your faith in him now because he's coming. That's the message, the last message of the Old Testament. The last covenant that's offered in the Old Testament is the new covenant in Jesus' blood, shed for you, available for you. You must believe it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that we would all consider this very carefully. What is the condition of our souls before you? Have we availed ourselves by trusting that Jesus died for our sins? And that if we've trust, trusted in him, that you substitute him for us, 
so that our sins go on him and his righteousness comes upon us. And all you see in us is his righteousness. That's the new covenant deal when we trust in Jesus. I pray, Heavenly Father, for every soul that's here that they have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior because he's coming. He's coming as Lord of Lords and King of Kings to set up his kingdom. And we're going to be there if we believe. In Jesus' name, we pray that everyone here would believe. Amen.